uh, series on my teaching Sundays called Emotionally Healthy. Um, see how we made that smooth transition from announcements right into talking about your emotional health? See, we just warmed you right up. This is new ground for us. Um, and if you weren't here to hear part one or part two, if you didn't have a chance to, to be here in person or to listen online or on the podcast, I just really encourage you to go back and check those out and kind of get caught up because uh, the teaching in part one and part two uh, really was providing the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today and for the next few weeks of, of my teaching here on Sundays. This series is really about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. So we said that one of the reasons that this is important and one of the reasons we believe we should be talking about this and learning about this is because Jesus was emotionally healthy. Jesus was an emotional being. He was an emotional being, and how do I know that? Because he was a human being. And that's not to discount that he was also God, that he was fully God, but even God the Father is an emotional being and we are made in his image as human beings. We are, whether you acknowledge it or not, deeply emotional. And Jesus, since our mission here is to become a, a devoted follower of Jesus and to be in a growing relationship with Jesus, we want to talk about and look at his example. And Jesus as a human experienced a full bandwidth of human emotion. As human beings, we experience all sorts of emotion. Even as healthy human beings, we experience all sorts of emotions and feelings. Some are positive, some are negative, some are healthy, some are not, some emotions we enjoy, others we don't enjoy at all. So then part of the process of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. And so we've said that it is impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And we started this series asking this question, what if all of our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us? My prayer for all of us in this series and for all of us as individuals and as married couples and as families and for us as a church is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as followers of Jesus. So last time we talked about some spiritual disciplines that will undoubtedly help us in our pursuit of not only spiritual maturity, but emotional health as well. We talked about things like solitude and silence and prayer, and we just touched on fasting and meditation. And we concluded in part two a couple weeks ago that whatever is lying beneath the surface in our lives provides an opportunity for intimacy with our Heavenly Father. So uh, we just decided uh, to dive into this, and so today we're going all the way to the deep end. And I hope you're ready. If you have your Bible uh, with you or you get the Bible app uh, on your phone, we're going to start with Genesis chapter 12. Um, and again, if you use the Bible app, uh, you'll, you'll be able to keep right up with us. We're going to kind of fly through this at the beginning. But before we uh, look at the scripture, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this time together as a church family. Thank you for the truth of your word. Pray that you would uh, just anoint our time together in this room for the next few minutes as we look at some principles of scripture and, and we make application to our lives. I pray that you give us clarity of thought. Pray that um, the words that are spoken from this podium would come from the right spirit. Pray that they'd be received with an openness. We invite you to do a work in us. The work that you've begun, we know you want to bring it to fulfillment, to bring us to maturity in Christ. May we be all in on that. May we be engaged with you as you work in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read at verse, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How many of you are familiar with this story in Genesis 12, this whole interaction between God and Abram? It's about how God calls this 
kind of random guy who we knew nothing about. His name is Abram. God later changed his name to Abraham. So we're just going to call him Abraham because that's what we know him as, okay? So we know nothing about him before this, just some guy. He seems to be some guy out in the desert. And um, God calls him to pay, play a part in the story of God's redemption of humanity, to be part of the thread through which God would bring his salvation and his healing and his life-giving love to, and redemption to a world that was spinning out of control. So to make this happen, God makes Abraham uh, a promise. He says, I'll bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So first, God says, I'll take you and your wife, who at this point turns out has been unable to have children. He says, I will not only make you into a family, I'm going to make you into a family so large that you become a great nation. Then I'll bless your nation, and I'll bless everyone on the planet through you and your family. Of course, we are on the other end of the story. We kind of know how God did that, but not, this is not bad for a random guy just minding his business out in the desert. This is verse 3. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He just takes off. So we don't know much about Abram at this point or Abraham, but uh, this is very telling. Through, he has an interaction with God. God says, do this, and he does it. He leaves behind his family of origin. He leaves behind his home. He leaves behind everything that is familiar. He leaves behind safety and security. Is this making you uncomfortable yet? Yeah. And he, calls, he follows God's call in faith. This is important. It turns out that God knew what he was doing. God knew what he was asking. It wasn't a random choice. This man was an incredible human being, but it doesn't mean he had it all together. So skip down to verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land. This is a common thing, by the way. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, or Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, if you've never read the story, you're thinking, ah, isn't that cute? Abram's a romantic. That's just out of nowhere. Sarah, you're so beautiful, and I know it. I know how beautiful you are. No. Verse 12. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me. Now, wait, stop. This is a long time ago, okay? This is a different cultural setting, and things worked differently. I'm not saying it was better or worse. It was definitely different. No, it was worse. <laughs> they, will, they will say, this is my wife, then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. So, verse 13, say you're my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. So they noticed too. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you lie to me? Is this Pharaoh saying this? Why did you say she's my sister? so that I took her to be my wife. Now then, and, and again, you can fill in lots of gaps in this story. But he says, now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way and his wife and everything that he had. This is a weird story. You don't have to get too deep into the Bible to get some weird stuff. I'm going to say about verse, chapter 4 of Genesis, and then it just continues to be weird. Is it okay to say that? Is it okay to acknowledge that? This is a bizarre story, because if this happened to you, man, you'd, you'd be plastering this all over social media, and you'd be talking about it, and you'd, it'd be amazing. They'd probably make a reality TV show about your life. In this story, Abraham tells uh, his wife to lie to Pharaoh and to put her neck on the line so that, number one, he would be safe, and so that, number two, he could make a whole bunch of money. So he's cunning. He's shrewd. He's a shrewd entrepreneur. He's a lying, sexist jerk of a husband. And believe it or not, this is not a one-time slip-up. Because if you turn to Genesis chapter 20, fast forward a few years. Genesis 20, verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed with Gerar and there, or in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, <laughs> she's my sister. And then Abimelech, another ruler, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. And God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman that you're, you have taken. She's a married woman. 
And you can read the rest of the story of your own. It happens again, the exact same thing. So this isn't a one-time slip-up. This was an on-purpose, ongoing, habitual thing in Abraham's life, and it lives on in Abraham's son. Look at this in verse, uh, chapter 26, a few years down the road. Abraham has a son named Ishmael, not from Sarah, but from Sarah's servant. And that's another whole deal that was really weird. It sounds, again, it sounds like some strange reality TV that you would think isn't real. And Sarah eventually does have a son. His name is, uh, anybody? Isaac. And we read this story about Isaac when he's grown up. This is Abraham's son, verse 20, chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Remember I said it's a common thing besides the previous famine. And, and uh, Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And the, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, this sound familiar? I'll give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. We'll give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him. You're like, really? Keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Abraham passed down the promise that God had made that said, I will bless you. You'll be a blessing to all nations on earth. It was like he passed it down as an inheritance to his son Isaac. Verse 6, so Isaac stayed in Gerar, and when the men of that place asked him about his wife, her name was Rebekah, he said, listen to this, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. Man, this is weird. Same king, same place, like father, like son. Turn the page, chapter 27. By now, Isaac has twin sons. The older of the twins is Esau. The younger brother, by a couple minutes, is, a, is named Jacob, and they do not get along. Chapter 27, verse 18. Uh, Jacob went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? And Jacob says, this is late in Isaac's life. Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. Was he Esau, his firstborn? No, okay, let's just make sure we got the details right here. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. The blessing here is the inheritance. It's the promise that God gave to Abraham. And Isaac asked his son, he says, how did you find this so quickly, my son? And he says, the Lord, God, your God, gave me success. Verse 21, and Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. And Isaac at this point is elderly. He's lost his sight. He's, I'm guessing his hearing isn't that great either. And here's his son Jacob deceiving him, taking advantage of his elderly father. Verse 22, Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. There's a backstory that you could read and get all this, uh, the shenanigans that went on. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. And he says, verse 24, are you really my son Esau? I am, he replied, lying through his teeth. And this lie is basically the first of many. When you read the, the rest of the story, Jacob becomes quite the con man, which uh, is kind of interesting because his name Jacob in Hebrew literally means deceiver. So I'm thinking maybe his parents set him up for this. I don't know when they gave him this name. But not only does the sin pattern live on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, but it's getting worse. And it lives on in Jacob's children. Look at chapter 37 of Genesis. One more generation. Stay with me for just a couple more minutes as we lay the groundwork here and get into some stuff. You fast forward a few years, and Jacob has a bunch of kids, including 12 sons. Genesis 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. <laughs> Do you have a sibling like that? <laughs> now, Israel is another name for Jacob, all right? God called him Israel. See where this story is going now? See why this story is important? Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So this is messed up. Because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him hmm, and could not speak a kind word to him. Jump all the way down to verse 31 of chapter 37. Joseph's brothers were out in the field. 
tending to their flocks. They've had enough of Joseph, okay? They've conspired against him. Some of them wanted to, this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. They've been working on this plan for a while because some of them wanted to kill him. Then one of them suggested, because he's just full of mercy, and he's like, why would we do that? We could sell him and make a bunch of money. So they, and I don't know what your rivalry has been like with your siblings, but I don't know if the thought of selling them ever really occurred. Oh, it did. Okay, never mind. So, yeah. So they sold him into slavery to a caravan on its way to Egypt, and shockingly for this family, you know, uh, they spin a lie around it. Verse 31. They got Joseph's coat, his robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they took the ornament. Think about the trouble they went to. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. And he recognized it, and he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him. Can you imagine? But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. So you might say that in this family, there's a pattern. It starts with Abraham continues with his son Isaac, then with his grandson Jacob, then in his great-grandsons, Joseph's brothers. And I've taken the time to read all of this because we see a, a number of things here that I think are important. First of all, obviously we see lying. That's the first thing we see in this, fam, this, this family dysfunction. Abraham lies about Sarah, not once, but twice. Then Isaac does the same thing, lies about his wife, Rebekah. Jacob lies all over the place. It's just a way of life for him, including to his own father in his father's dying days. And then Jacob's sons lie to their father's face about their brother Joseph and a lie that goes on undetected for years. And this is just scratching the surface of their family issues. We didn't read this part, but there's, if you go read this whole story from chapter 12 all the way through Genesis, at least through 37, all kinds of misogyny and not only mistreatment of women, but sexual sin as well. There's Abraham and Sarah's servant, starts there. Seems to skip a generation, we don't have any info on that, but then Jacob is a full-on polygamist. He has 12 sons with four wives. And then out of that, we see all this favoritism. Abraham initially favors Ishmael over Isaac. That causes issues with Sarah. And then Isaac favors Esau over Jacob, and Jacob favors Joseph over all of his siblings. And then because of that, we see all this sibling rivalry, you think? This tension between Sarah's son, Isaac, and her servant son, Ishmael, results in Ishmael being kicked out of the family, and that family feud has continued for over 4,000 years. Jacob and Esau, they're always at each other's throats. Jacob steals his inheritance, and as a result, Esau says, Jacob, you're going to die for what you've done. Then Jacob's sons sell their brother Joseph into slavery to a caravan traveling to who knows where. Wouldn't you like to know what they did with the money they got for selling their younger brother? This family has issues. The sin of one generation affects the generations that follow. And when it's not addressed, it not only affects the next generation, it lives on in generation after generation after generation. And this pattern isn't unique to Abraham and his family. Look at this passage in Exodus 20. This is a pretty well-known passage. Uh, This is where we find the story of Moses and the Israelites and what we know as the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't call them that. God didn't call them that. That's just a name we give it for a heading in our Bible. There's a lot going on here, but let's just jump in and read a couple verses. Verse 1 of Exodus 20. God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We call that the first commandment. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And here's why. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now hang with me here, okay? Verse 6, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now don't freak out here, okay? Because this is torn out of context all the time. God, as far as we can tell, because of everything we know about God, is not saying that the great-great-grandchildren get punished for their great-great-grandfather's sin. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, number one, that generational sin is a real thing. 
sin is uh, kind of like DNA in that it's passed down from parent to child, or more precisely, the bent towards a specific sin and a certain kind of behavior is passed down from parent to child if it isn't addressed and if it isn't corrected and if it isn't changed. Secondly, he's saying that sin has consequences that last for generations. We don't get to escape the consequences. For example, I wonder how many of you have suffered or are suffering because of your parents' divorce. Sometimes we're surprised by what that looks like because it's manifested itself maybe in your story in things like academic trouble in school that you never had before. Behavioral problems with your siblings and your step-siblings and your classmates. Emotional and relational issues like low self-esteem and a confused sense of identity and a personal insecurity. Things that make it hard to have healthy, thriving relationships. And you think those things, left unattended and unaddressed, don't contribute to the higher divorce rate among children whose parents have divorced? Because that's just data. And maybe this chain reaction started with your great-grandfather's abuse of your great-grandmother. You didn't even know about that. Or maybe it started with your mom's affair or whatever it was. Sin has consequences. And the ripple effect, the collateral damage, is real. And it can be catastrophic, and it almost always plays itself out in our relationships. Oh, then the third thing God is saying on the scale of his mercy and judgment here in Exodus 20, that mercy, when it comes to mercy and judgment, mercy wins every time. Let's not miss that. In the text, we read that God punishes sin to the third and fourth generation, but then God shows love to a thousand generations. Is God a God of justice? Yes. But God's heart is to show love and mercy. And this idea of God punishing the children for the sins of the parents, listen, this is a bit tricky, but it's important. It isn't that God will punish you for your dad's sin or your grandfather's sin. Hey, my dad screwed up, so that's the way it is. I, what can I do about it? God's mad at me. No, that's not, that's not the idea. The idea is that your grandfather's sin lives on in you and your propensity towards certain behavior. So like it or not, your father's sin or your mother's sin lives on in you in the tendency towards the same behavior. Because God's a God of justice, he doesn't look the other way when we lean into what seems to come naturally. So I believe that's a more accurate way to interpret those verses. The point I'm trying to make, since in this series we're talking about being emotionally healthy, is that our family of origin has a massive impact on who we are today. You're like, no duh. (laughs) You know what I mean by family of origin. That's the family you grew up in. And not just our family of origin, but our past in general has a massive impact on who we are today. Because maybe for you, when you look back, it was your parents' divorce. Maybe it was the death of a family member. Maybe it was abuse. Maybe it was growing up in, uh, in the home of, of an addict. Maybe it was growing up in poverty. Maybe it was living up to someone's expectations that you could never meet. Maybe it was some kind of a, kind of a one-time traumatic experience that shaped you. But here's the thing. Listen. Bad things have happened to all of us, and these things have, placed, have played a part in shaping us into who we are today. Can we just acknowledge that to be true? And we all carry the good and the bad from our past into our present, and if we neglect to address it in a healthy way, we carry it into our future. Here's the thing. Abraham made a lot of mistakes, but he was still an outstanding person. Right? I mean, we're talking about Father Abraham. And Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm one. Sorry, I just had to lighten the mood a little bit here. Uh, Here's the thing about Abraham's son most of them were dysfunctional in a very significant way. But he was still an outstanding man, and he passed on the propensity towards certain sin. And he passed on the promise of God. So let's get the whole picture. God said, I will bless you. You'll be a blessing to the whole world. 
My point is that we all carry the impact from our family of origin. We all carry experiences from the past. We all carry both an inheritance and generational sin. And this is a pattern we see all through Scripture, and we've seen it in our own lives if we'll acknowledge it. Here's the thing I really want to get across, and I really want for you to em- embrace this morning, and it's this. That regardless of what your family of origin experience was, regardless of how good or bad or how that all balances each other out, regardless of the generational sin patterns that you've had to deal with, regardless of the trail that you've had to blaze maybe in order to do family and relationships differently than your parents and grandparents did, regardless of the abuse or the neglect or the expectations or the disappointments, regardless of all that, and I know this sounds simple, but I want you to hear this, God wants to do more with your story. God wants to do more with your story. And God can do more with your story. And you may not believe that. You may think, I don't know what I'm talking about, and how could I possibly say that or know this to be true? Here, because I know that except in the rarest of circumstances, our family is the single most powerful and influential group that has or will affect who we are today. There are probably a good number of us in this room this morning who come from relatively healthy families for the most part. And if that's you, when we're talking about family of origin, the temptation is to kind of tune out, you know, I know this, you know, or to to assign this teaching to somebody else in the room because somebody else who's really broken, my issues are minor, that person's seriously messed up, that you must be talking about them. Because some of you, if you sit here and you think about your family of origin, you think about your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents who you never met, and you're thinking, yeah, I know, Todd, because I come from like a long line of awesome, I mean, awesome parents, awesome grandparents, awesome uncles and aunts and great-grandparents and cousins. I mean, everywhere I look, it's awesome, and everything is awesome. Well, that's nice for you, and truly, I'm happy for you, and I hope you enjoy your stay in Delusionville. <laughs> Let's be honest. The reality is that all of us have baggage, For some of us, it's one massive suitcase because it's all about one thing. For others, it's a ton of carry-ons because it's all accumulated. But we all have baggage. Most of it's stuff from our family that we need to look at. Some of us might be tempted to believe that by looking at the past and bringing up stuff from the past that that'll dishonor our parents or it'll dishonor our grandparents. So why would we do that? Why would we stir the pot? But I want you to hear this. Honoring your parents doesn't mean that you ignore the sin, that you ignore the sin patterns, that you ignore the unhealth, that you ignore the dysfunction, that you ignore the hurt, that you ignore the disappointment and the unmet expectations. It doesn't mean that you ignore the baggage in their lives that has impacted your life. So there's a lot to be said about the process of looking at your past for the purpose of looking forward. That's why we do that. And I'm not suggesting either that we can do that in this setting. So, so just relax, okay? I'm not going to have you work through, you know, a dozen questions about your family of origin. Um, that's not something we do in this setting. It's not something we can accomplish in the hour and a half that we have left. Um, oh, thanks. Cool. And that, uh, <laughs> I take your silence as tacit approval. Um, or that you could even accomplish that over a cup of coffee in an hour, you know? It's quite the opposite. I'm suggesting that this is a serious commitment of time. It's a serious commitment of emotional vulnerability, maybe some money because counselors need to be paid. And I'm not suggesting that exploring your path, ideally with the help of a counselor, it's going to fix everything in your life that's unhealthy, but I do believe it could be the catalyst, the starting point to help you move forward. Can you imagine? Just listen. Can you imagine what it would look like in your life if you stopped blaming your parents? Can you imagine what it would look like in your life if you stopped blaming your grandparents? Can you imagine what your life would look like if you faced your past, really dug into your story, and finally acknowledged that maybe there are some unresolved issues from your family of origin that you just don't want to go there? That maybe the things that you struggle with today are a generational thing. Maybe your mother, your grandmother wrestled with the same thing. Maybe your experience in childhood and in adolescence really did impact who you are as an adult. Really did affect your sense of who you are, your identity, and your security. 
So if you remember a couple weeks ago, um, in part two of this series, we talked about looking beneath the surface. That was the, and we showed the picture of the iceberg, and this was, that was the first principle in this series. So today's principle is about breaking the power of the past. Emotionally, you don't break the power of the past by ignoring the past. Can I just, okay? You don't get to just say, well, here the past is over here, and now I'm over here. Done with that. Emotionally healthy people understand how their past affects their ability to love God and to love others. That's a sentence I probably need to repeat. That emotionally healthy people understand how their past affects their ability to love God and to love others. They realize from the truth of Scripture, they realize from the experience of life that an intricate relationship exists between the kinds of persons they are today and their past. Lots of external forces and influences shape us, but the family that we grew up in is the primary and the most powerful uh, influence uh, on your life. And if this is true of us, listen, adults, if this is true of us, then it is also true of our children, the children who are growing up in our homes right now. They have a family of origin too. It's yours. That ought to motivate us to be as healthy as possible. Because their family of origin, the life they're living right now, is right now impacting who they become. The kind of relationships they have. The kind of life they live. And I hope you feel the weight of that responsibility. In order for us to be emotionally healthy people, in order for us to be an emotionally healthy church, to break free from the power of the past, listen, you can't break free from your past. Your past is your past but you can break free from the power of your past. In order for us to really experience the all-transforming power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, then we have to be willing to look at and understand our past, including our family of origin, so that we can live a life that moves forward, because sometimes going back is the only way to go forward. Here's the thing. God is always able to redeem the brokenness of our story. Aren't you glad? That's the kind of God that that we serve. It's the kind of God that we worship. That's the kind of God who loves us, who's always able to redeem the story of our, the brokenness of our story. But he doesn't erase it. We've fallen for forgive and forget kind of thinking in the church, and I don't, that's, I don't, that's, I don't think that's a biblical principle. So anyway, there's work for us to do. In order for us to become the people God intended us to be, we have to identify and then we have to understand how our story, our history, our family history, how all that impacts the way that we understand God, first of all. Who we understand Him to be, how we love Him, how we relate to Him, and how we love and relate to other people. So if we choose to ignore or to minimize or to compartmentalize, that's what we're really experts at, to rationalize or to revise our past and the impact of our past, uh, we, listen, the church, we will be in danger of telling a disconnected and shallow version of the gospel. Because until we grasp the depth and the power that the past has had on who we are today, we will inevitably mirror and repeat those patterns from our family history. We'll find ourselves embracing ideas about ourselves and ideas about God that may not even be true. And once we realize that our past, including our family of origin, including traumatic events, and when we realize that that has impacted who we are today, and that in order to become emotionally healthy, we need to break the power of the past, listen, you can't break the power of the past until you've faced it head on with total honesty. So the question becomes how, right? That's, that's the question, how. How do I break the power of the past then, if it's that simple? And obviously, you know, this is, th- listen, I, I don't want you to think I'm, I'm over, that I'm simplifying something that's really complicated, because this is a long and nuanced and complicated process. It, this, this morning, is in no way exhaustive. This isn't the final word, okay, on this topic. I just want to give you a few thoughts to get things started. Uh, something that you can take away. So uh, let's, let's see where this goes. Number one, first of all, you have to see it. You identify it. When we talk about our past, when we talk about 
the influence and the impact and the patterns of your family of origin, identify it. For some of you sitting there, that's crystal clear. You're like, oh yeah, that's like family of origin 101. Got it. Pretty obvious to me. But for others, it's not so clear. It's not so cut and dry. It's not so obvious. So you've got to start to ask some questions. Who are the people? What are the events that have shaped me into who I am today? What are the circumstances around those people? that have shaped me into, what are the beliefs that I have about myself, about relationships? What are the beliefs about God that I have today because of those influences in my life? Why do I believe this? Why do I believe this about God? Why do I believe this about men? Why do I believe this about women? Why do I believe this about relationships? Why do I believe this about children? Who in my past has influenced all those beliefs? I would just warn you, it's an eye-opener. When you start to look at your parents, your grandparents, their relationships with each other, their relationship with you, their relationship with your siblings. And sometimes, uh, to get some clarity and help you with this, you can simply invite your siblings into this process. Because together you might get a clearer picture. Be prepared for the Joseph and his brothers scenario, but, um, and then when you find out you're the favored one and you're the one that he conspired to sell to anybody that would take you, just be ready. Um, you're like, really, that conversation with my sibling? I don't think so. That's maybe why I'm, that's why I'm suggesting this. You might invite your spouse into the conversation. You might find it helpful to sit down with a neutral party like a counselor. Whatever it takes to go beneath the surface. And this is awkward, okay? It's not the kind of conversation that we typically look forward to, but... How else do you get an honest assessment of what your story really is? So I want to encourage you to just bathe this process in prayer. Ask God for wisdom and listen to him. That's why we talked last week about solitude and silence and prayer. Because we need that discipline in our lives to get the clarity we need for this. As you listen to God in that process, let him flood your soul with peace and grace in this process. It may be a little bit uncomfortable and awkward and, and painful at the beginning, but in the other side of it is peace and healing. So first off, you see it, you identify it. Um, and for you sitting right here, you might see it right now. It might be like crystal clear to you what the thing is, what the nature of whatever the thing is that you grew up in in your family of origin. You're like, that's it. You know, my dad abandoned me. My mom was an alcoholic. There was infidelity. There was, it might be real clear to you what the thing is. Or maybe when you finally stop long enough to intentionally engage in this process, it comes to you in a moment. Maybe it kind of surprises you because you never thought about it that way before. Maybe you've never been very open to thinking about it that way before. You have this rose-colored lens kind of view of your past. It might take a few weeks or even a few months of really sitting with someone who can help you get into the story, to get beneath the surface, to go deeper into your story than you've ever gone before and deeper than you can go on your own. So I would say, number one, identify it. Number two, own it. Own it. Listen, take responsibility. You, may, like, you, you don't get to choose everything about your story, but it's your story, so own it. The point of digging into your past isn't to blame someone else. It's not, ah, there, that's why my grandfather was a class A jerk. That's why. That's why I'm also a jerk. That's not the idea. Might explain something, but you don't get to blame him. So first of all, identify the, the pattern in your own life and kind of start to figure out what makes you tick, what makes you who you are in the present. And the urge that a lot of us have is to get angry and to get bitter and to get mad and to blame um, that's not a new thing. It goes all the way back to the very first uh, human beings. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? And regardless of what you believe about creation, about the first you know, two or three chapters of Genesis where Adam and Eve came from or whatever, wherever you land on that, there's a point in this story that we need to hear. So let's not let our questions distract us from, from this because you can have your questions, that's fine, but I don't want you to miss this. Adam said to God, he said, the woman uh, that you gave me, she made me do it. <laughs> oh, okay then, Eve... Oh, yeah, the serpent, that serpent that I was having the conversation with, uh, he made me do it. This has been around for a long time. 
So the idea of unearthing the past isn't to justify your anger with your father or your disappointment with your mother. The point is that sin and dysfunction and unhealthy patterns live on in us. And unless we break the power of the past, no matter how much you're determined, you know, I will never. Oh, in some way or another, you're repeating the pattern. The behaviors may look different. The unhealthy motives behind your behavior, though, will be the same unless we break it. You know when it stares you in the face when you see it in the behavior of your own children, right? Like, huh, where'd they get? Must have skipped a generation because that's how my father was. So my father and then my kids. Huh. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Identify it, own it. Number three, take it to your community. Let me explain this. Allow your community to come around you and love you as God wants you to experience love. The worst thing you can do with sin in general, with generational sin and unhealthy patterns in particular, is to hide it or to sweep it under the rug or to deny it or to justify it. The worst thing you can do is to keep it a secret because secrets have power. They keep you enslaved to wrong thinking, and wrong thinking leads to wrong beliefs, and wrong beliefs lead to wrong behavior. But when secrets are exposed, we see them for what they really are, weak, defeatable, most of the time a flat-out lie. But we need God the Father, and we need our community. And I don't mean everyone you know, okay? I don't mean your Facebook community. Not a good place to process this, okay? I mean, that'll come up with your counselor too, but I... I mean your inner circle. The handful of people that know you best and have demonstrated their love for you. We need our community to show us what it means to love. To show us what it is to be loved. To know and be known. To serve and be served. The dominant metaphor in the New Testament uh, for what the church is, is family. So our responsibility, and I don't mean my job and Pastor Bob's job and the elder's job, I mean our responsibility, all of us, the church. It's our responsibility to show one another what God's love looks like. To show one another how to relate to our Heavenly Father and how to relate to one another in a healthy, life-giving way. That responsibility is on all of us. Here's the bottom line. Your family of origin does not have to determine your future. You may have let it determine a lot of things in your life for a long time, but it doesn't need to be that way. In the family of God, no matter what your experience has been, you are not powerless. You are not powerless to change. You are not meant to be in bondage to the past. In fact, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you, and you can with the help of the Holy Spirit. Take all the good from your family of origin and your past experience and carry that on to your children and your grandchildren and to all the people that over, with whom you have influence in your church and in your community. You can carry all the good. And you can take all the dysfunction and the pain and the hurt and the disappointment and the baggage and the sin that you carry with you from your past and you can cut ties with it. You can let go of the power of your past and walk away into God's future for you. But to do that, listen, it doesn't happen naturally It doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen quickly. There's no magic formula prayer to pray at the end of a sermon. Come forward, come maybe kneel at whatever we call this thing. Say a magic prayer. There, we're all done. It's not a moment in time kind of decision to do this, to walk away from the power of your past. You have to get intentional. Got to do the hard work. Got to get painfully honest, be vulnerable, and lean into the truth of what life is in the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul teaches in the New Testament that we've been adopted into the family of God. The calling of God is to let go of the power of the past. It's no longer who you are. It doesn't have to define us to live life to the fullest in our new family, in God's family. So you may have been doing life believing that the way you're doing life, compartmentalizing, avoiding, denying, justifying, pretending, putting on a good face is just the way you got to do life. Just the way it is. You aren't even sure why. Just the way it is. It kind of works for you. It's not everything you want your life to be, right? It's not terrible, so I guess it kind of works. What you may not realize 
is that if this is the way you're doing life, you are a slave, not only to your past, not only to your pain, but you're a slave to a lie. And here's how, why I would say something as extreme as that. Because if your way of living life is by compartmentalizing and avoiding and denying and justifying and pretending and putting on a good face, then even with the most impressive spiritual pedigree, everything you know about the Bible, you're still choosing to believe that Jesus didn't actually come to do what he said he came to do. You're believing a lie. Jesus said that he came to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. A few minutes ago, we read a little of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. Uh, he's the one whose brothers sold him into slavery. Well, Joseph, and I know a lot of you know this story, but spent several years as a slave in Egypt, probably 10 years or so from the age of 17 into his late 20s. And we're like, oh yeah, 10 years as a slave. Okay, yeah, what's next? Think about that. 10 years as a slave. He was in a, in a foreign culture. Then he's falsely accused of a crime and sent to prison for two or three years. Joseph's life didn't radically turn around. It wasn't like his brother sold him into slavery and a few miles down the road he prayed a prayer and he was able to escape and return to his father and he made him a new coat. No. Spent 10 years as a slave, two or three years as a prisoner. Finally does get his break. <laughs> he got a big break. But listen, he's still estranged from his family. His father still thinks he's dead. His brothers hope he is by now. Yet God had something very specific to say about his life. It's interesting to me, after all of his hardship, after all of his loss, after all the pain, Joseph eventually ends up as second in command in Egypt. There's Pharaoh and then there's Joseph. And I love the story of Joseph. So I love that over and over, over in the story we read the words, and the Lord was with Joseph, um, and the Lord was with Joseph. And oh, here's this other bad thing. Oh, and the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph just kept doing what anyone would do who believed that God was with him. So many years later, Joseph is in his probably late 30s or early 40s. Circumstances were such that his brothers were brought before him to the, his seat of power in Egypt. And after all this, this is what Joseph had to say to his brothers. In Genesis 50, they've just buried their father. This is Joseph's chance to exact revenge on his brothers for, what, for ruining his life, for ripping him away from his father. Here's what, here's what Joseph had to say. Chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Listen, most of the time we get caught up in viewing our pain and viewing our past through one lens. What I love about Joseph's words to his brothers is that it calls us to look at our pain through God's lens. It calls us to ask the question, how does God see my pain? How does God see it? If he sees it, if he even notices, how does he see it? What does he have to say about that? Here's the truth. God can use what is evil, even the sins committed against us and the sins we have committed. He can use our past, all of it, for good, for redemption. In a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter, and the resurrection of Jesus is, is ultimately about God doing the impossible. It's about bringing hope to humanity. It's about a family that's, uh, humanity is a family full of messy, complex, painful stories. And Easter is the story of making something beautiful out of that. My prayer is that we would trust him with our past so that we can find freedom today in our present. And maybe that would become a catalyst for freedom in the lives of others in the days ahead. Why don't we play a song for you? And then the band's going to come. This song uh, borrows from the words of the 13th century poet. You may be a big fan. I'm not sure. Uh, Rumi, who wrote the word, The wound is the place where the light enters you. He came from a different perspective than I do. But I agree with that. And uh, let the words of this song uh, speak to you.
just enough. Stuck on a planet, even time forgotten. You're a version of yourself, but you're not the same. You try to keep the wound camouflaged, and the stitches heal, but the years are lost. And another bottle on the shelf can't numb the pain. Why you running from yourself now? You can't run away, 'cause you're scarred. Shines through.